right, will you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30, please? We'll do the first half of this chapter. We're doing well. We're almost there. I'm not too eager to be out of Deuteronomy. It's just, I love it. I'm loving Deuteronomy. It's just, there's a lot of Deuteronomy. But starting in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 1. Remember, Moses is preaching a sermon. And as he's preached this sermon, he's told us about all the wonderful things he's done for us in the past and all the, all the hard things he'll do for those that forsake his covenant. And now his next word is in verse 1, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the works of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I myself am continuously amazed when I read old passages that my eyes just skipped over and I thought, yeah, yeah, I know. And Lord, each time you show us uh, new things, wonderful things, old things presented in new ways, and Lord, so we pray, show us marvelous things in your word. Show us marvelous things in your law, we pray. Pray, Lord, you'd help me to be clear, uh, to give a good understanding of these things, and that you would bring your power. Uh, store these things up in our hearts and our minds, O oh Lord, really and truly, so that whether we need it right now, if we're far from you, or whether we need this years from now, Lord, that they would be with us. They would stay with us. They would find their mark and stick. We ask, O oh Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Remember, the end of chapter 28, Moses wrapped up the law. He wrapped up Deuteronomy as a covenant document. And now in chapters 29 and 30, he's preaching a long sermon. And in this sermon, he's challenging God's people, commit to the Lord, commit to his covenant. Everything we've just said, I want you to commit to it. So since Moses' sermon is roughly a four-point sermon, we're taking up one point a week for four weeks. Two weeks ago when we started, Moses told us the first big reason to commit to God, to commit to his covenant. He said, God's been so kind. That's why we commit to him. He's been so kind to us. Second reason, last week, Moses told us the second reason to commit is because, well, it's really dangerous not to. 
It's a fearful thing to be a covenant breaker. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And now at this point in the sermon, Moses turns, and now he's turning to a very specific group of people. He turns to people who might hear all these exhortations and, and say inside themselves, I can't. They're thinking, you know, Moses, I've done horrible things. I've broken the covenant so many times, and I'm so far away from God. I don't even know if there's a path back to him. Uh, in his day, Moses was talking to a hypothetical, and it's even prophetic, but a hypothetical future generation in case they really blew it. Speaking to future people, people who would someday worship idols, people who would do unspeakable evil, people who would then be judged and exiled to the farthest reaches of the known world. He's talking to people in the future he knew would do that probably but at the same time, Moses is also looking down the corridors of time and he's, he's talking to you. Because you know there are times when you're stuck in sin. You're stuck. Times when you're drifting from God. Maybe you're so far away from God in your heart, you're so deep into another kind of life, you just can't see any way back to him. Well, God has just one big word to people who are in this kind of position. In the Hebrew, it shows up six or seven times in this passage like a drumbeat. And his word is this, his word is, turn, turn. God's message to people in this situation is, if you turn to God, God will turn to you. Simple as that. Now for the rest of our time together, we'll just make sure we know exactly what this means, what it doesn't mean, because everything depends on that. Everything depends on you understanding that he says, turn, and he'll turn to you. So. We'll take up our first point, because our two points are really turn to God and he'll turn to you. Our first point, this is Moses' third point in his sermon. It's our first point tonight. Uh, God's reminding evil people that they can still return to him. Uh, he's telling this to people even after they sacrificed their children, even after they killed his prophets, because with our God, where there's breath, there's hope, Right? So this word we're looking at tonight, this is meant as a massive lifeline, really to a future people for Moses' day, a future people that might read this and remember this and say, oh, he said, though, he said we could turn back. He said we could. But it's a massive lifeline to anybody that finds themselves far from God. Because this passage is shouting, it's shouting, you can return to him. God wants you to return. He invites you in the law to return to him. So now let's make sure we know what it means to turn back to God. And in this passage, just here, uh, it means three things. It means to turn your, your heart, to turn your attention, and to turn your actions. I'm going to show those things one at a time. So first, turn your heart. This is what we read in verse 1. Moses is writing to those people in the future. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So, in the ESV, the verse they translate it, call it to mind. In the Hebrew, it's something more like when you turn your lavav, when you turn your heart. Uh, the word can mean heart or mind. It's just the center of who you are, right? It doesn't really matter if it's heart or mind. But the important thing is it's describing sort of like a deep realization. So what's going on here with this person is... They're aware of God's blessings and cursings on some level. And one day they're looking around at their situation and, and something clicks. They get it. They're like, oh, 
They're like, you know, all of this is really true. It's all true. His judgment's true. His mercy's true. I can finally see how empty everything is without him. I can see how scared I am of a future without him. Uh, and hasn't he said that if I call out to him, he'll save me? And don't his people seem to have something that I don't have? And it all clicks. Verse 1's talking about the kind of person that Jesus describes in the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son comes to himself. He's there in the far country, and he, he comes to himself. He's like, oh. So this person's always had the data. They've even known about the covenant. They've known about God, but it's finally sinking in for them in an entirely new way. So first comes this deep realization, this turning of the heart. Then second comes the turning of attention. You see that in verse 2. It says, return to the Lord your God, you and your children. little side note, isn't it interesting? It's always covenant. You and your children, you and your children. But I digress. So this is a matter of orientation. At one point, a person's got their back turned to God. They're not listening to God. They're not talking to God. Their attention's on the world on just about anything else. Then at a certain point, their face turns fully back to God, and he's got their attention. So they're actually listening to his words with interest. They're talking to him about their sins. They're talking to him about the things that they need. And this is when a person starts addressing God like their life depends on it. Like he's the most important thing ever. So that's second, the person turning not just their heart or their mind to him. They're turning their attention to him. And then third, a person starts to turn their actions toward him. So you see that the second half of verse 2. And obey his voice in all that I command you today. So the next step, just simply stated, a person starts to obey God. They start to turn away from the evil things that they used to do. And they start to turn toward the good things that God wants them to do. But this is actually a major emphasis at this point in Deuteronomy. You see it in verse 2 and 8 and 10. Throughout this passage, look at verse 8. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all of his commandments that I command you today. And I think I know why this is such a major emphasis. It's because obedience is the surest visible sign that a person's really turning back to God. Think about that. If you've got an iceberg of what it means to turn back to God, obedience is like the tip of that iceberg. Uh, all the other signs that a person's returning to God, they show up under the surface. But obedience, you can see. It's foolproof proof. Uh, like you can't see necessarily when a person's heart's turned. And you can only kind of see when their attention's turned. But obedience, concrete, with your hands, good works, you can see that. It's verifiable. Uh, obedience is something solid that you can build assurance on. It's when a person puts their money where their mouth is, so to speak. So at this point, I think some Christians might balk. They might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor Rosser. You're saying that I have to do something to return to the Lord? What about justification by faith alone, Pastor Rosser? We're not saved by works, and... To all that I say, you're right, I'm, I'm right there with you. But this is a major problem in American evangelicalism today, I submit to you. 
a lot of people have a really shallow, incomplete understanding of what it means to turn to God. Because turning to God in faith means turning in all three ways. It means turning in your heart and in your attention and in action, in what you do. I think people generally know, they'll say, yeah, okay, of course I see that I need to see my need for him. I need to come to myself. And of course we need to turn our attention to him. We even need to confess our sins. But, but then I think that's where it stops for a lot of people. I think it's because a lot of people have heard a, a rather truncated gospel and a lot of people are against a call to obedience because, well, A, maybe they've heard people abuse this truth in the past. They've lived under the tyranny of legalism. Uh, they tried to be saved by their works. They saw how miserable that was. But also, B, maybe they don't like this doctrine because it, it disturbs their sinful ease. A prayer of confession they can do, but they don't want to change anything about how they live. But over and against that, look what Moses is teaching here. He's not teaching that God accepts us based on our obedience. He's not teaching that we have to earn our way back to him. That's not it at all. But he's calling for faith. He's calling for true faith. He's calling for living faith. Faith you can actually see. Faith that pokes up out of the water on the top of the iceberg with observable obedience. He's calling for fruit-bearing faith. As James says, faith without works is dead faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. So yeah, Moses is calling his people to do something. He's calling his people to turn to God in faith. He's calling them to turn their hearts and their attention and their actions. Not just as lip service. There's enough of that. Not just in a shallow ritual like people like to do. Just do this little thing and then you'll be saved. Say this prayer and then you'll be saved. But at the end of verse 2, he calls the people to turn to God with all of their heart and all of their soul. You see that. Now you take these three, 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 uh, three things together. You take a turned heart and a turned attention and turned actions. And they actually have a really fancy theological term that you already know. It's just called repentance. This is what repentance is. All the way back in Deuteronomy, it's a turning of the heart and a turning of your attention and a turning of your actions. And so just to prove I'm not making this up, being novel, listen to question 87 of our shorter catechism. It says, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, means God gives it to us, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, there's the turned heart, there's the coming to yourself, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, there's the turned attention, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. There's turned action. See, it's all there. Repentance has always been the same. People today like to water it down, truncate it. But all this being said, this is how you turn to God. You repent. It, don't take any shortcuts. Don't leave anything out. Turn your heart to the truth. Turn your attention back to God. God, you're the most important thing. And I hate my sin, by the way. And turn your actions away from sin progressively more and more toward his law, which is to obey. That's our first point. That's what it means to turn to God fully. All your heart, all your soul, turn to God. And now we come to our second point. Because our, our whole sermon altogether is not just turn to God, it's turn to God 
and God will turn to you. So this is where God tells us what he'll do if we turn back to him. He says, I'll turn to you. Now, this might not sound all that great the way I said it. Just turn to me. That sounds, well, a little mundane, but, but this is big. Uh, this is more wonderful than you can even comprehend. This is why Moses devotes the whole rest of this point to this. Because he wants to tell us about the astonishing things that God has promised he will do when people turn back to him. Remember, this is what God's promising people who he knows someday would be straight up idolaters. So not only is this point just grace upon grace upon grace, but it's talking about grace that's so good, it's outrageous grace. It's scandalous grace. So what does God promise for anybody who turns to him? Well, so much undeserved favor, so much grace. So first, consider the attitude of his grace. I'll ask you this. Imagine you spit in God's face and you walk away from him, but then you want to slink back. What kind of welcome do you expect from most people when you spit in their face and walk away, slandering them even? Well, I wouldn't expect a warm welcome, all things being equal, but if you look at the last part of verse 9, it says this, For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. You read that and go, what? Have to be, if you're an angel, you're like, what? Hebrew is actually even a little stronger. It actually says, Yahweh will turn to rejoice over you. It's a rejoice word. And there's that turning word again. It says, Yahweh will turn to rejoice over you, is what the Hebrew says. So all this to say, whenever you turn back to God, he's happy. He's right then and there, he's happy. Like Jesus says in Luke, there is much joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. So much joy. That's his gracious attitude. And it's not just like sometimes, with some people, like really special people. It's every time. You turn back to him, you turn, but you really turn back to him, and, and the Lord smiles. As outrageous as that sounds, he smiles at you. That's the attitude of his grace. First, we're considering the attitude of his grace. Now consider the reach of his grace. It just gets better and better. Verse 3 and 4, the Lord promises to bring his people back from captivity to where they've been scattered, but that's not all. Don't you love verse 4? If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he'll take you. It's a little bit hyperbole, isn't it? Not only is God promising that he'll hug close people who have run away far from him, he's also saying no matter how far you've gone, you are not beyond his reach. He says this to lawbreakers and rebels. That's the reach of his grace. Say, what's the limit of the reach of his grace? Well, it's infinite. There's no place you can go in this life that you can't return to God. So third, consider the depth of his grace. It gets even better. Third, depth of his grace. Not only does God promise to bring his people back close if they return to him, He also promises to come so close that he'll change their heart to keep them close to him. Because, think about it, what's the biggest threat to your relationship with God? It's you. It's your heart. 
If you think about it, that's really the only real threat to our relationship with God. It's our own hearts. Satan can't take you away from God. Persecution can't take you away from God. Disease and suffering can't take you away from God. It's your heart. So he promises, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, there it is again, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Biblically speaking, this is one of the first hints we get of the new covenant's effect on the heart. It's one of the things that makes the new covenant so great, so big, so wonderful. How the new covenant would involve the giving of a new heart, the writing of the law on the heart. You'll see this again and again. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, on and on and on. Scripture is so consistent. But the beautiful thing about this promise, it's not just something that God promises to do if someone does return to him. It's also, we realize now in, in retrospect, looking from the New Testament, it's something that God does preemptively so that we may turn back to him. Because think about it, how can a selfish sinner turn their heart back to him in the first place? They don't want him. How can someone who's spiritually blind and deaf and numb, they've got a stony heart, how can they have this realization? How can they come to themselves? How can they turn their heart? He says, turn your heart. They say, I don't, I don't love you. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And so, yeah, God's grace comes first. If you've ever had this deep realization, it's because God's given it to you. If you feel a tugging on your heart, it's because God's tugging on it. But what's more, uh, this is a grace that reaches down to the very depth of your heart to keep you close. He brings you back in close, and then he keeps you close. That's the depth of his grace, how far it penetrates. Fourth, if we go through all, first, the attitude of his grace, the reach of his grace, the depth of his grace. Now, I want you to consider the lavishness of his grace, because it gets even better. Because listen to this, if you're far from God and you return to him, not only does he promise, I'll rejoice over you, I'll pull you in close wherever you are, I'll fix your heart so you won't want to wander from me. He also promises to give you all kinds of blessings beside. You can track the blessings pretty easily in this passage. I don't need to talk about them too much. I want to. Verse 5 says, he'll bring you back to his promised land. He'll give you a place, an inheritance. Verse 7 says, your enemies will be cursed instead. So that means you'll be protected. You'll be defended. Verse 9 says, the work of your hands will be prospered. You'll have fresh purpose, fresh success. Verse 9 says, your family and your farm will be fruitful. You'll have life coming, life coming back into your family, back into your, the things most important to you. Now, if you're an ancient Israelite, these are about the best blessings you could ask for. But if you think theologically now as a new covenant Christian, I think you'll see these blessings. We saw how the curses were even worse in the new covenant. I think you'll see that the blessings are even better in the new covenant. Because remember, the new covenant doesn't just totally throw out the old covenant. Uh, it picks it up, expands it, deepens it, makes it better. So look at how all these blessings translate for us in the new covenant. He says, if you return to God, not only will you be brought to Canaan, you'll be given your own place in a new heavens and a new earth where you'll reign. Jesus said, I want to prepare a place for you. 
Uh, and it says, your enemies will be cursed. Your enemies won't just be cursed with all of the physical things, the plagues and the famine and things from back in chapter 28. In the new covenant, we understand our enemies will be utterly removed off of the earth and cast into the lake of fire. And God doesn't just pro- pro- promise to prosper the works of our hands. In the new covenant, he gives us soul-satisfying kingdom work to do, work that he'll reward forever. And he doesn't just say he'll make us fruitful in our families and on our farms, not just having new life flow into people that are important to us. Here in the new covenant, he lets us lead others into everlasting life. We get to be the heralds of his gospel I read this, and I read it with a new covenant lens. I think, what amazing blessings God has for anyone who turns back to him. And what I want you to notice about these blessings is that they're certain and they're outrageous. I say they're certain because no one can take them away. Satan tries to bring our, uh, take our blessings away. He brings persecution. He brings suffering. He's always trying to strip away God's blessings. He hates that you're blessed. But these are blessings that no earthly thing can ever take away. Satan can't take away your place in the new heavens. He can't take away the curse that's going to happen to your enemies. He can't take away the prospering of the work of your hands that God will establish. He can't take away the eternal life that you bring to those whom you love. He he can't touch it. So these blessings are certain. They're going to happen. And these blessings are outrageous. Because they're being promised to awful, horrible sinners. And not only, this is where it gets really outrageous, especially for the older brother in the prodigal son story. You're thinking, but I've never departed from you, God. Not only are these promises outrageous, he doesn't just promise to bless awful sinners. He promises, when you return, I'll bless you more than before. Look at verse 5. He says, he'll make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. You read a promise like that, you think, you're going to, you wait a minute. The people that left you, you're going to make them better off than they were before? How outrageous is that? But such is the matchless grace of God. It's beyond your comprehension. That's good news for you. Because you need it. That's why you shouldn't be outraged. Because this is, this is what you're counting on. This is what you are counting on. So just listen. At the end of this second point, our sermon, just listen to this little rich recap. I want to draw it all together. Of all the blessings that God's promised if you return to him, because I want to add the weight of persuasion to this. If you return to God, here's what God promises. He will rejoice over you. He'll pull you in close. Doesn't matter where you are. He'll pull you in close. He'll work in your heart to keep you close to him forever. And he'll give you rich, eternal blessings. Your last state will be better than your first. So friends, here's what Moses is getting at. Here's what he's preaching. He's saying, you think you've blown it. You don't think you could ever commit to the Lord and his covenant. Not with what you've done, not with where you've been. Moses is saying very simply to you, he's saying, don't be ridiculous. That's an excuse. That's a smokescreen. Moses is saying, don't you know how eager he is to restore you? 
Don't you know how good he is at restoring people? He can do it because cosmically he can do it because he gave his son to take your curse on himself. He can do it because Jesus has united himself to you in spirit and given you his own inheritance. He's given you the inheritance of the son of God. So God promises if you turn to him, he will turn to you. Like full blast, he'll turn to you. You turn to him like a little bit, he'll turn to you like a lot of it, is what he says. He says it again in the New Testament. You ready? James says, James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's just no good reason not to turn back to God. No good reason. So let's start to conclude. I have loved studying this. I've thought how wonderful it is just soaking in God's grace tonight. I can't understand people who say things like, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a lot meaner than the God of the New Testament. He's just so full of judgment, they say. And I read this. Or they say, well, why would you just want to preach through Deuteronomy? It's just law. And I say, man, couldn't be any farther from the truth. Do you see? Do you see? You know what you're looking at in Deuteronomy 30, right? You're looking at, like we looked at with Pastor Trice this morning, you're looking at the story of the prodigal son in Moses' day. This is the story of the prodigal son, except it's being applied to a whole nation, a nation who had been in rebellion against God for ages. Because look, Moses tells this nation, basically, when you find yourselves in a far country, having squandered all of your inheritance with prodigal living, you can come to yourselves. And when you come to yourselves, you can return to your father. And guess what? Your father, he will run to meet you. He will be only too happy to meet you. Israel, son of God, the Old Testament, this is, your father is just waiting. He will be waiting to bless your socks off. God's people back then didn't know exactly how that would be possible. They might have thought, how is this possible? But what they did know was they knew, well, God will provide a lamb. And he will make a way in the wilderness when he returns. So brothers and sisters, whether you need to hear this now, I'm sure somebody needs to hear this now. I needed this this week. Or whether you need to, to squirrel it away for later, store it up for later. Even if you just have to store up the impression of this. I remember someone saying at some point that I, God will be happy to meet me no matter what. Uh, God really is this gracious. He wants you to turn back to him. And if you need rock-hard proof, uh, how about the fact that he sent his son to die cursed on a cross for you? It's rock-hard proof. He promises if you turn to him, he will turn to you. The last thing I'll say is I, I do want you to remember, though, I say this, he promises if you turn to him, he'll turn to you. But remember this. You do have to turn. Do you see verse 10? The ESV says, is this little summary, summary statement, verse 10 says, all these good things happen 
when you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Actually, that could easily be translated. I think it's better to translate it if. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So my last word to you tonight is this. It's don't just stop after hearing about God's graciousness and say, whew, I'm good then. I can just keep sinning because he's just so gracious and, you know, it's good. No. You have to repent. You have to repent from the heart. You turn your heart. You turn your attention. You turn your actions. That's how we know that it's real repentance. You turn your actions. You turn to him. And then know how warmly and how graciously he will turn to you. Amen. Well, I want to set the table without delay. Uh, here at this table, you see again why God can be so gracious to you. Like why it's possible. Why a sinner can ever expect a good reception from a heavenly father whom they have so angered. The bread and the wine remind us that the father turned against his son so that he could turn towards you. This being Jesus is what Jesus put himself up to, to doing for you. And the fact that you're invited to a family meal reassures you that Jesus warmly welcomes all who turn to him in faith. You should come to this remembering what he did and also saying, it's true. It's true. This is supposed to be an aid to your faith, a family meal for you. To convince you, yes, weak sinner, yes, running away sinner, it really is for you. He really wants you here. So, of course, all this is only true if you're a Christian. You should only come to this table if you're a repenting, believing member of his church. But all that's left for us to do, if, you're, if that's truly you, even if you're a weak Christian, all that's left to do is let's just take a moment to lay down our sin, turn our hearts to the Lord, because if we do, he'll, he'll surely turn his face towards us at this table tonight. Uh, and this is his token that says forever. He'll turn his face to us forever. So now let's just take a moment to prepare our hearts so we can come to the table of the Lord. Father, as we turn to this table, it might even be hard for us to believe. We're confronted with so much sin. The accuser even accuses us of so much sin, but we do believe. Help our unbelief. We believe that you're this gracious. We see the token and the proof that you're this gracious. And so we pray, O oh Lord, use this meal to, to confirm this faith in us, to convince us, Lord, and may it give us rest. May we have rest in your grace. And any any who are here tonight, O oh Lord, may this table uh, draw them by your grace. May you woo them to new repentance. Please meet us here, O oh Lord. We're turning to you. Please turn to us. We pray uh, because as you've promised, Lord, we pray knowing that you will give exactly as we ask because you always keep your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.